a wonderful time of praise and thanksgiving. Amen. Thank you for that, Seth and team. Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. If I have not met you, my name is Tyler Cash. I get to serve as one of the elders and pastors of this congregation that gathers under the name of Jesus, but we call ourselves Christ Covenant Fellowship. We're in the study of the Gospel of John, the Gospel according to John. It's not about him, but it's his perspective, his standpoint, his viewpoint in how he recorded the events of Christ's life. Today we're going to be looking at John chapter 1, verses 6 through 13. So I hope you have a Bible with you. Uh, if you don't, we have some in the back. You can grab one of those. I'm going to be teaching from the ESV. That's uh, usually where we uh, spend our time in teaching. But turn there with me. John 1, 6 through 13. If you're new to the Bible, it's all right. Ask for help. Ask somebody beside you. John's the New Testament. It's one of the Gospels. I'm going to read a, this portion of scripture for us. I'm going to pray God, for God to help us and guide our time. John 1, 6 through 13 reads this. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Let us pray. Father, before us, we have a passage of scripture that uh, it demands our attention. Father, there are profound truths here that have the capacity and the power to shape our lives. Lord, would you help us to see Christ as he is? That we would see this passage and we would take the truths that are here, we would apply them to our views, our vision, our words, when we speak of our Savior. Father, would you change us? Would you help us to leave here different than we walked in? For those that may be heavy laden, would you bring rest? 
comfort as they see Christ. For those that may have walked in here haughty and prideful, would you humble them and help them to see the humility of our Savior? Father, we need your help. So we ask what we know not, would you teach us? And what we are not, would you make us? And what we have not, would you give us by your grace, for your glory? In Christ's name, God's people said, amen. Last week, we were introduced to the eternal Savior, uh, the one who had no beginning at all, the Savior who was with God in creation, the Savior to which all of creation belongs. Uh, we were taken to the mystery of Christ in the realm of eternity and what that really means. And then, just like that, John enters us into real space and real time. We're reminded that the eternal Christ, the second person of the Trinity, God himself, entered into the world that he created to make himself known to humanity. In the first five verses, we are introduced to Christ as the Word, the life, and the light. And this passage before us, the Apostle John expands the idea of Jesus Christ as the one true light who has now entered into the world. In fact, the Apostle John uses the word light five times in these verses, which uh, tell us that this is something that we need to consider. We need to take it into consideration that this is significant in its use. So what does he mean when John calls Jesus the light? Well, the Bible has much to say about the contrast between these two polar opposites, darkness and light. Darkness is actually the absence of light and uh, really has no power in and of itself. It has no power on its own. It's just an absence of the powerful light. Uh, we read in Genesis that in the beginning of time as, as we know it, that God invaded darkness with light. And what did God call this illumination? Good. He said, this is good that this has happened. The New Testament then draws on this idea of light invading darkness as a good idea, a good concept, a, a very good thing that happens. Uh, we often think in, in our humanity and we often think really of, of light as something static, right? It's like on or it's off. It's either there or it's not. It's absent or it's present. But light is anything but static. Uh, science defines light as luminous, electromagnetic energy. 
And light moves at the speed of over 186,000 miles per second. Per second. So when the Bible speaks of Jesus being the light, we aren't talking about a table lamp here. We're not talking about something that we just happen to turn on and, okay, well, it happens to invade the space that I'm in. Here, the term imports a sense of divine brilliance, a holy illumination, something beyond imagination, light energetically invading space, causing the darkness to vanish with all power, with all authority. This idea is what undergirds John's message in these verses as he points to Jesus Christ as the one true light that has the power to bring salvation to a world that is full of darkness. So we look at these eight verses today. I want to provide us with a four-heading outline. If you're taking notes, write these four headings down. Number one, we'll see the witness of the true light. Number two, we'll see the revelation of the true light. Number three, we'll see the rejection of the true light. And number four, we'll see the reception of the true light. Let's look at the first. The witness of the true light. We see this in verses 6 through 8. Look there with me. Verse 6 reads, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. Pause right there. Here we are introduced to a man named John. Now, this man is not the writer of the gospel. This is a different John here. Uh, This John is John the Baptist. We know that because later in this chapter we get a more detailed look at John the Baptist's ministry and even the importance of it. Uh, We're going to talk more about John the Baptist in the upcoming weeks, but I do want to take a few moments of our time today to provide some insight into who John the Baptist was. You've got your Bible. Turn back with me uh, real quick to the Gospel of Mark. It's right after Matthew. Um, We're going to look at chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. I'm just going to read this for us here. Mark 1, uh, all the Gospels, uh, all the Gospel writers speak of John the Baptist, but I think Mark really uh, gives us the best concise kind of summary of who John the Baptist was. He kind of paints the best picture in my opinion. And he says here, Mark's writing here, we'll we'll go down to verse 4 actually. It says, John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him. They were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John, John the Baptist here, was clothed with camel's hair. He wore a leather belt around his waist. He ate locusts and wild honey. He preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, 
the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So John was quite the character, right? You, you picture this man dressed in uh, camel hair and eating locusts and uh, wild honey, kind of uh, the same uh, nutritious uh, things that the Old Testament prophets would eat. His clothing was also similar to that of the Old Testament desert prophets. And John plays a very significant role in redemptive history, uh, which, like I said, we're going to look at that a little bit more in the weeks to come as the gospel writer, the apostle John, writes more about it. But here, John starts off with really giving us the primary reason that John the Baptist was significant. And there's really three words, right? He says he was a man sent from God. He's a man sent from God. Now, this short and striking description of John the Baptist sets him apart as one who was on a specific mission from God himself. John proceeds to give us some insight to his mission in verses 7 through 8. Look there with me. He came as a witness, to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. So say this with me, what, what was John's mission? To bear witness, to bear witness about who? The light about Jesus Christ. Now this phrase, to bear witness, is kind of a, a courtroom language. It's used for someone giving a testimony on something that they know to be true. We'll give you an illustration here. Uh, say you witness a car accident. Uh, someone in front of you, someone runs a red light, and boom, they hit another car. Uh, you could be then summoned to that courtroom to then bear witness to the truth that you saw what happened. You saw car A run the red light, run the stop sign, and hit car B. Maybe car A is trying to say, nope, wasn't my fault. You say, it is your fault. You bear witness to what? The truth. So a witness's job is to illuminate the truth. The truth. This was John the Baptist's mission. He was a forerunner of Jesus Christ. Uh, Luke writes in Acts 19.4, you don't have to turn there, but I want to read this, right? He's, he's, he's giving a, a description of Paul's ministry, and he says that Paul said in 19.4, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one that was to come after him. That is Jesus. John had a mission. Even Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 11 says that there was no human greater than John the Baptist. He says, like, he was the man. But the reason, 
the essential reason for his greatness was because he was the one that was sent to testify that Jesus Christ was the promised Messiah, the almighty Savior, the one that the people had anticipated and had been waiting for. So we can kind of summarize these two verses like this. God sent John the Baptist to testify to the truth that Jesus Christ is the one true Savior so that people would believe in Jesus Christ and be saved. One mission. Now I want to make an assertion here based on the implications of this text. This is the mission of every Christian minister. Amen? A Christian's minister's objective is to point people to the truth of Jesus Christ. We are to illuminate the truths found in Scripture that Jesus Christ is who he says he is. Christian ministers are not priests. They're not mediators between man and God. There is only one mediator, the man, Christ himself. Ministers don't distribute some type of divine grace uh, through any type of sacramental means or by rituals or traditions. Uh, True ministers are not self-help gurus uh, helping you to achieve a, a better you. They're not life coaches. We aren't influencers. We're not entertainers. We're not comedians or showmen. True ministers illuminate the truth of Christ. We aren't psychologists who help people feel better about themselves. No Christian minister is a divine faith healer anointed in some supernatural way above everyone else. That is falsehood. Those types of falsehoods should be quickly and sternly rejected. I think Charles Spurgeon sums this up very well when he says in a sermon from 1876, he says, The motto of all true servants of God must be, we preach Christ and him crucified. A sermon without Christ is like a loaf of bread without any flour in it. No Christ in your sermon, sir? Then go home and never preach again until you have something worth preaching, end quote. See, the Apostle John points us to this truth by identifying the reality of John the Baptist's ministry. He clarifies that his sole purpose to bear witness about Christ is his mission. He is to testify to the truth about Christ. And listen, we all know that testifying to the truth about Jesus Christ isn't always easy. It's rarely popular, and it never wins cultural approval. Being a witness to the true light may cost you relationships, financial security, comfort, or even some their lives. If you recall, it cost John the Baptist his head. 
but it is worth it if Christ is exalted and souls are saved. Praise God, he uses faithful witnesses of the true light for his glory. But we must take note that the Apostle John points to the reality that Jesus Christ also has, in a sense, revealed himself to everyone, whether they have heard the truths of Scripture or not. Look at verse 9 with me. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Here we see our second heading, the revelation of the true light. Now, notice here how John continues to build on the word true light, the the phrase true light here. He says there is a true light that gives light to everyone. So what does he mean here? Well, what we will see in this gospel as we continue in our study is that John often highlights the major distinction between believers and unbelievers, Christians and non-Christians, those who love light and those who love the darkness. We will see this theme often repeated in this gospel. And John sets this up here, right? This is the prologue. This is setting this up. He's, he's building the foundation, kind of the framework to which we will look at the rest of this gospel. And he says here that God himself, Jesus Christ, the true light, has come into the world. Now, the word world is actually used here in a negative tone. Uh, There's different uh, um, terms and uh, phrases in the Greek, the original Greek, and uh, different tones of words that are used. And here we see the negative tone of the word word, world, the word world. That's hard. That's a tongue twister, right? It is used here to describe the created order, especially humans and human affairs that are in rebellion to creator God. So when you think of the world, the word world here, think of it in these terms. Uh, we see this uh, elsewhere. Uh, if you turn to Romans chapter 1 w- with me, Romans chapter 1, uh, it's 2, Romans chapter 1, 18 through 23. Look here with me real quick. You really see this elsewhere. I want you to see this, read this with me. 18, he says this. Paul's writing to the Romans here, and he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. And he goes on, he says, so they are without excuse. 
For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were dark. And he goes on to uh, speak some more. But here we clearly see that God has revealed Himself to man in many different ways. Since the beginning of creation, man has been able to see God at work. But sinful man despises God and chooses the creation over the Creator. They they want the things of God and not God Himself. Want to be their own God, control their own kingdoms. The gospel of self, right? Want what's best for us. Want to do what enhances our lives. John's point here is that the incarnation, when God himself entered into the world, that he created, he supplied humanity with enough light, enough revelation, you would say, to leave humanity without excuse. Once again, we were reminded, as Pastor Brandon mentioned last week, that all of humanity is left to answer the question, who is Jesus Christ? I mean, it's the most important question you will ever answer. In our own country, recent studies show that Most Americans, over 92%, in fact, believe that Jesus Christ was a real person. They would say, like, yeah, he was a real person. Historians, atheists even, would acknowledge the fact that Jesus Christ was a real man. Uh, Most false religions believe that there was a man named Jesus Christ. Um, Some even believe and teach that he was divine. Uh, Buddhism, Islam, Hinduism, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, to name a few of the most popular. But the fundamental distinction here is that Christianity declares with boldness that Jesus Christ is the world's one and only true Savior. And there is no other way to achieve a right relationship with Creator God except for through Jesus Christ. Amen. Furthermore, Christ revealed Himself in a way that no other so-called God has done. What's He do? He comes into the world that He created. He reveals himself as the true light to his creation. Shows himself worthy of worship by his life, his death, and his resurrection. Humanity is without excuse. We see then in verses 10 and 11, this rejection of light really played out here. It says in verse 10, look there with me. 
He was in the world. The world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. Now, verse 10 continues to build on the theme of sinful humanity's rejection of the one who created them. Uh, This is a striking passage here that further communicates the depravity and sinfulness of man. The inability for man to see Christ as he truly is on their own. We read on in verse 11, right? He came to his own. His own. And his own people did not receive him. Circle that. Underline it. They did not receive Christ. Here John gets more particular. He says that Jesus came to his own people. His own people wouldn't receive him. This verse describes the unbelief of the Jewish nation upon Christ's arrival. The people that were chosen by Christ himself. These are the covenant people of God. Chosen by him. And they did not receive the Savior that came to then rescue them. Think back to our study of Amos, if you were with us then, right? The sinfulness, the depravity, the, then the promise of the Savior. Well, the Savior came. His name was Jesus. The first, his own here, literally means his own things or property. You see that first phrase, his own. It's his things, his property. Uh, and then the second his own means his own men, his own servants or subjects. Uh, this is meant to show that Jesus Christ come, came to a people that were literally his own people. They were given to him. A people that he had full authority over. You see, it wasn't just their status that was significant here. It was their relationship with God. To feel the gravity of this, I want you to just kind of think for a moment, all right? I want you to think about the, the group of people, whether that be your family, your closest friends, uh, the people that when you're around them, like, you just feel loved. You, you, you can be yourself. There's laughter. There's joy to be had. Uh, there is just the, the greatest experience of uh, relationship that you could ever imagine. If you don't have that, then um, we'll be praying for you and we can talk through that. But I want you to think about the best place. That group of people. And I want you to picture yourself, right? Going there right now. You're going to this gathering of the folks that love you most. You're going to the place and you're about to just spend some time. You're anticipating this. You lock eyes with your favorite human, all right? You picture this right now. Then they they look back at you and they yell, get out. We don't want you here. We don't need you. 
you're no longer wanted in this space. Brothers and sisters, that is what John is describing here. He says, Jesus Christ, he came to his own people, chosen by himself. And his own people wouldn't receive him. In fact, his own people rejected him. Let that sink in for a moment. Isaiah, as we read earlier, right, he foretells this reality of our Savior in Isaiah 53.3, right? He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief as one whom, from whom men hide their faces. He was despised. We esteemed him not. See, this reminds us that the true light, Jesus Christ, was rejected, then we'll often see that he's rejected now. See that those who are his people should prepare. We should remember that we will also see rejection too. John records the words of Jesus later in chapter 15 of his gospel when he says, Jesus talking, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they keep, kept my word, they will also keep yours. Notice he's making this distinction even further. Unbelievers, believers, there is a separation here. So, beloved, brothers and sisters, we must remember that our Savior, the true light, Jesus Christ, was rejected. But praise God, he completed the mission that he was sent to complete. See, Jesus died a gruesome death so that through his blood, the new covenant would be attributed to some. See, we have confidence that even though there are many who reject the true light, there are those who receive the true light. Amen? Look at verses, well, verse 12, as we look under this final heading, the reception of the true light. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. This is the turning point of this section of Scripture. This is where we see true hope. Verses 10 and 11 would be pretty gloomy. They would be pretty bleak, pretty grim, 
if verses 12 through 13 didn't quickly follow. See, the gospel is the good news that despite man's depravity, God still saves. God still saves. The phrase receive him shows a different response to the true light than we read above. This is a reception of Christ as being the one that he says he is. John expounds that point by saying, those who believe in his name. In his name. Now, the name here is not used as just a label. It represents his character, the person of Christ himself. Think about it, right? When a, when a child is first born, first given a name as a baby, uh, you may think of some you know, physical attributes or characteristics of that baby when you think of the name. But there's not a lot of uh, character. There's not a lot of, of the person of that child at that point. As the child continues to grow. When you say their name, there's some characteristics that accompany it. There's characteristics. There's a, a, a being, a, a something that we must know that this is true about this person in order to truly speak about this person. You know, if I hear someone talking about my wife uh, in a way that does not fit her character, um, one, I'm going to have to ask the Lord to restrain me. But then second, I'm going to correct them and say, hey, that's not my wife. That's not how you represent her name. So here we see that the idea that John is communicating is not simply all who knew the name of Jesus are going to be saved. Not just those who, well, yeah, that Jesus guy. He is saying all who believe that Christ is who he says he is. The true light. The one who came to seek and save the lost. God himself. This is what it means to receive him. Now, notice something very important and applicable for us. He says it is all who receive and believe. All who receive and believe. Brothers and sisters, this reminds us that there is no one that is too far gone. Praise God. There's no one that has done too much. There's no one that has messed up one too many times. No, he says that all. And the Greek word that's communicated here means whatsoever persons. All who would believe in Christ. John writes that he gives them those who believe the right they have the right now to become children of God. And essentially what he's saying here is that he gives them papers. He says adopted. He welcomes them into the family. He says mine, my child. One of the 
greatest things about adoption, I think, is that you actually, like, you pick your kid, right? I love my children very, very much, but I didn't pick them. You know, I didn't choose them specifically. But adoption even says something greater. It says, I choose this one. I love them. And I want them to enjoy the splendor of family forever. He says, you're one of us. But notice the implications here. We must not miss this either. One is not a child of God unless they believe. J.C. Ryle is helpful here as he writes, There is no sonship of God without living faith in Christ. Let this never be forgotten. He goes on, he says, To talk of God being men's father and men being God's children while they do not believe on the Son of God is contrary to Scripture. Those are not children of God who have not faith in Jesus Christ. End quote. Listen, this should compel Christians to evangelize. This should compel Christians to grow deeper in their understanding of the truth about Jesus Christ so they can point people to the one true light. Brothers and sisters, let us not grow lethargic in our zeal for knowing Christ and sharing Christ with the lost. Because we understand that all who believe And faith comes by hearing, hearing the words of Christ, our Lord, our Savior. John reminds us here that salvation is miraculous. It is supernatural. It is nothing that can happen on one's own. He says in 13, who were born? Not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Circle that in your Bibles, underline it. But of God. Who were born. Here John points to the the beauties of the new birth. Basically, there is nothing to describe the radical change that happens in salvation under the, other than saying that someone's just been born all over again. It's like you, you've got to be born again. You've got to be radically changed. The theological uh, term for this is called regeneration. Regeneration. And uh, regeneration is just a quick uh, definition. It's the sovereign work of God granting spiritual life to each Christian, raising them from the dead so that they are now able to repent and trust in Christ and are made a new creation. They, They are made new. They are changed. John gives us three specific clauses in verse 13 
solidifying really our understanding of this new birth that he's just introduced. Number one, he says it's not of blood. You can see that with me. And essentially what he's saying here is that it's not being born of uh, uh, the blood, right? Like kind of how the Israelites were uh, God's people under the old covenant. They would be born into that. They were descendants of Abraham. Essentially what this is saying that grace does not descend from parent to child. So listen, if you are banking on your parents' good faith, their salvation, their church attendance, their whatever, insert, for your salvation, brothers and sisters, that will not suffice. It is not of blood. We're not, parent, we're not Christians because our parents were Christians. Now, praise be to God that we are called as parents to minister to our kids, to show Christ to our kids, to proclaim the gospel to our kids. But regeneration, conversion, transformation, the new birth is done by God. He goes on, the second clause we see here is that it is not the will of the flesh. This implies that you cannot be saved because of your own desires. Listen, salvation doesn't happen because you just woke up one day and decided to get saved. True regeneration doesn't work like that. It's not just because you made the decision, you decided by your own will, your own, de uh, your, your, your own desires to, to then do something on your own. John points to the truth that there is a supernatural work that must take place. Something has to happen. Something has to change. And we can't do it on our own. He goes on, the third clause we see, nor of the will of man. Uh, this represents the acts of others, right, including ministers, as we mentioned above, that like no one can, can uh, just give you some type of saving grace. That is not how it works. I nor other minister can will you into salvation. We cannot confer grace upon anyone else. That is a lie from the pits of hell. It is a distorting view of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So then, how do people experience the new birth? How does it happen? The last words of verse 13 state that those who receive Jesus, who believe in his name, or are born of God. See, Christians become who and what they are solely and entirely by the grace and mercy of God himself. We don't deserve it. 
There's absolutely nothing we can do to earn it. But God, because of his love, his kindness displayed through Christ, God has adopted us into his family and made us children. Said, mine. Brothers and sisters, may we be a church that fearlessly and eagerly bear witness to the true light as long as the Lord gives us breath in this world. May us be a church that is a witness, bears witness to who Jesus Christ is and the power that he holds to save rebel humanity. Let us pray.